there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Aristotle said many years ago that all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. And as I ponder that statement, I, I would agree. All of us want happiness. The thing that differs is where we look for it. And Christians are very strange people, weird, peculiar people, whose lives make absolutely no sense except in terms of invisible things. Think about that. It's very difficult to explain why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do. And when my husband Jim Elliott was killed back in 1956 by a tribe of so-called savages called Alcas, this piece of news was flashed around the world very quickly. This was in the early days of TV before everybody had gotten so inured to shock that we were still capable of being shocked. And people were shocked, first of all, to discover that there were still Stone Age people in the world, and secondly, to find that there were five young, strong American men, apparently normal American men, for whom obedience to Jesus Christ was literally a matter of life or death. And you can imagine the difficulty that we widows had in trying to explain to reporters what this was all about. What is this missionary thing? Are we just busybodies that go all over the world trying to straighten everybody out and telling everybody they're all wrong? That was one definition that I have heard from somebody. And I can remember struggling to try to explain the motivation of these men. And I remember saying to a Life magazine reporter, I'll tell you the truth, I'll give you the straight answer, but it's not going to make any sense to you. These men were not adventurers. This was not a stunt. They were not looking for heroics. Never crossed their minds that there would ever be any such word as hero applied to any of them. They were there in obedience to a master, Jesus Christ. And when we look for happiness, I believe that it cannot be found except in Jesus Christ. Now, that may sound like a breathtakingly arrogant statement, but Jesus turned everything upside down and inside out when he came into this world. You remember the staggering statements that he made to the crowds who followed him up onto the mountain. And I thought I had a marker in the right place here, and I see that it's disappeared, so I have to find the place. Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to multitudes. He sat down on the hill, and when his disciples had gathered around him, he began to address them, and this is the teaching he gave. How blessed are those who know their need of God, and that word blessed is translated happy 
in some of the more modern translations. This is a modern translation, but blessed, which is used in the old King James Version, is exactly the same word in Greek as the word happy. Now, can you imagine standing up and speaking, say, for example, on nationwide television and saying, happy are the sorrowful? People would begin to wonder whether you got your notes messed up or something. Happy are those of a gentle spirit, for they shall have the earth for their possession. Happy are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevailed. Happy are those who show mercy. And how about this one? Happy are you when you suffer insults and persecution and every kind of calumny for my sake. Accept it with gladness. In one of Flannery O'Connor's stories, she has a criminal about to shoot an old lady. If any of you have read Flannery O'Connor, you're familiar with her weird characters and her very strange situations. And this little old lady is a Christian, and this criminal says to the old lady before he shoots her three times through the chest, Jesus thrown everything off balance. He's a southerner, and he leaves out the R from throne. And there's a very deep sense in which that's exactly true, isn't it? By saying such paradoxical things... I'd like for you to think today about what has made you happier than anything else in your whole life. And what do you think might make you happier? Where would you look for greater happiness than you already have? Well, I, I cannot think of anything that would make me any happier than I am now, and I know that the joy that I have experienced myself has come through Christ himself. The only thing I should say that there would be one thing that would make me a lot happier, and that would be if I were more like my master. But in Psalm 119, we have this word again over and over. The first verse says, happy are those whose life is blameless, who conform to the law of the Lord. Happy are they who obey his instruction who set their heart on finding him. And I would hope that this afternoon there are many of you here who have set your hearts on finding God himself. That is your goal. And one of my life verses is Psalm 119.14. I have found more joy along the path of thy instruction than in any kind of wealth. I have found more joy along the path of thy instruction than in any kind of wealth. That's the straight truth. That is my testimony. But you know, we have, all of us are prone to worldliness in our thinking. And Paul wrote to the Romans, if, if, if it's a problem today, it was a problem even way back then. Paul said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within. And that's the struggle that we're always up against. There is that deep-rooted worldliness in our thinking. We have this idea that maybe a new set of carpets or a new car or a new husband or this or that or the other thing might make us a little bit happier. And, of course, that's baloney. 
most of us know, people that apparently have everything in material sense, and some of those people are utterly miserable. Lars and I know a couple in which, in which the, the woman is one of those people who just is convinced that she's got to have everything Susie has. And when her friend Susie gets a new carpet, then our friend has to get new carpet. And when Susie gets a fur coat, then our friend gets a fur coat. And she is one of the most miserable people we know. And the marriage is a miserable marriage. And we feel so sorry for her sweet, humble husband who doesn't seem to want anything in the world except a little peace and quiet. (laughs) Where do you look for happiness? What do you expect God is going to do for you? James, the first chapter, it says this, When all kinds of trials and temptations come into your lives, my brethren, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. Now that's Philip's translation. This is what the New English Bible says. Whenever you have to face trials of many kinds, count yourselves supremely happy. Now, how many of you would find that real easy to do? May I see your hands? (laughs) Any kind of trial or temptation or trouble that comes into your life, you're supposed to welcome it as a friend. Throw the door open and say, come on in. Count yourself supremely happy. How do we do that? Well, it takes... For most of us, because we are so slow and so unbelieving, it takes a long time to really believe that God does mean exactly what he says. And I would like to say this afternoon that there are three very clear steps to joy. I know they work because in whatever measure I have tried to follow these three things, In that measure, God has given me joy and happiness. And again, they're words that the world despises. Words that you're never going to sell in our day and age. And they are these. Number one, surrender. Number two, acceptance. And number three, obedience. I do a lot of talking to women about what it means to be a woman. And unfortunately, a lot of things which were terribly obvious and self-evident to my generation have been practically deleted from the minds of younger generations. And this is the reason why I wrote a book to my daughter called Let Me Be a Woman. When she was about to get married back in 1976, I made her a present of this book. This was her wedding present from me. Let me be a woman because she belongs to a generation that has been deeply confused by what it means to be a woman and by what it means to be a man. And as I've thought and thought and thought and written and written and talked and talked about this subject for many years, I don't think there's a better way of defining the essence of femininity than surrender. And you probably have noticed that Women who call themselves feminists generally don't like to talk about the word femininity very much. 
And certainly I don't think I've ever heard one of them use the word surrender, except in a pejorative sense. Now, why would I say that the essence of femininity is surrender? Well, because I think that the epitome of womanliness, the great eternal example for all of us that we find in the Bible of what it means to be a true woman was Eve, not Eve. Eve is the opposite. Mary is the great example. Eve should have been. She was the mother of the race, but Mary was the mother of the Lord. And when that great angel appeared to Mary with his staggering announcement that she had been chosen to be the mother of the Son of God, you remember what her response was. It was an instant and total surrender. Now, remember that Mary was engaged. She must have been looking forward with great joy to her marriage to Joseph. Remember also that she was Jewish, and the Jewish law required that a fornicator or an adulterer be stoned to death. And if it crossed Mary's mind in those few seconds between the angel's announcement and her reply that possibly she would be considered a fornicator, she never hesitated. She was willing to put her life on the line And her reply to the Lord, to the messenger of the Lord was, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen, as you say. Surrender. Now, we all know that when we fall in love with a man, what we want more than anything else in the world is the opportunity to surrender ourselves to that man. That is what married love is about, isn't it? It's surrender. You give yourself totally. All that was guarded and distant and reserved and kept is now turned over to this man. And as the Bible says, the husband does not own his body. He owns his wife's body. And the wife does not own her body. She owns the husband's body. And so it's a total exchange of rights and privileges. But Mary, to me, is the great example of what it means to be surrendered to the will of God at any cost, never mind what people will say, never mind whether she was going to be able to explain this pregnancy to her family, to the village people, let alone to her fiancé. It was, let it happen, as you say. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. And I know that whenever I have surrendered myself to the will of God, the result has been joy. Very often it looks before the fact as though it will lead to disaster. And I've been in a position myself more than once where it looked to me as though the direction in which God was asking me to go would be a very dangerous thing to do, disastrous perhaps, and yet I've known from early childhood that I must obey. My parents taught us to obey them, and the scripture clearly teaches that we must obey God. So the first step of learning to know God, becoming a godly woman, is surrender, 
And another one of the role models in my life, and I really don't like that word role model because it sounds as though roles are sort of optional. You can just pick up any role that you want. I th- I think that God assigns roles to us, the role of a wife, the role of a mother, the role of a woman, the role of an older woman. And we're going to get to that passage in Titus that talks about what older women are to teach the younger women. But one of the role models was a young woman who was on her way to China to marry her fiancé. His name was John Stamm. Her name was Betty Scott. And she was one of the many missionaries that came through our home. My parents believed that hospitality is commanded in Scripture, and so they were hospitable, and we had the benefit, we children, of having many hundreds, I guess, of missionaries sit at our dinner table, and we listened to their exciting stories and their tragic stories. And I remember vaguely that young woman, Betty Scott. She had been a student at Moody Bible Institute. She was on her way to China. I remember much more vividly when I was eight years old, my father came home with the newspaper in Philadelphia telling about the capture of John and Betty Stamm by Chinese communists and how they were led through the streets of the Chinese village and Betty was forced to watch while they chopped her husband's head off, whereupon they put her head on the chopping block and she too was beheaded. Now you can imagine that made a deep impression on an eight-year-old child who had met that lady. And I came across her prayer and when I was about 12. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And that captured the imagination of this 12-year-old child. And a word to you wise mothers of children, do not underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. I can remember consciously thinking to myself when I was about 10, these grown-ups don't know what's going on in my head. And they don't know that I know that God is speaking to me. And I knew when I was 12 years old that I had to pray that prayer if I was going to really learn to know God. And I copied it into my Bible. And I still have that Bible with Betty Scott Stamm's prayer of surrender. But having surrendered myself to God, of course, he began shaping me, which is what he has to do. He has to shape us into the image of his son. Romans 8.28 says that everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And you know what his purpose is? Well, it tells you in the next verse, Romans 8.29, that we might be conformed or shaped to the image of his son. Who are the happiest people you know? If you know some real saints of God, I dare say that you would 
name them as the happiest people you know. I've never known a real saint that was not a picture of joy. How many of you ever heard or saw in the film Corrie ten Boom? Well, Corrie ten Boom was an old lady who had been in concentration camp under the Nazis and had seen her sister starve to death there and her father also died in that concentration camp. But Corrie ten Boom's 85-year-old face or whatever it was, it was around, I think she was in her 80s when I met her, it was just the epitome of joy. Not because nothing bad had ever happened to Corrie ten Boom, but because in those horrifying experiences. She was shaped into the image of Christ. And if you and I are going to become godly women and therefore happy women, we have to start by saying, in effect, whatever words you want to use, thy kingdom come, thy will be done is good enough. And we have to start telling the Lord that we'll do what he says. Now, this makes sense if you look at it from a standpoint of just practical things like learning a sport. I don't play tennis, but many of you play tennis. I would assume that if I were going to learn to play tennis, I would have to know what the rules are, and I would have to have somebody coach me. And if I, if my goal was to learn to play tennis, I would do exactly what my coach told me to do to the best of my ability. So we're not, we don't mind surrendering when we know that the person to whom we surrender is going to help us to reach the goal, right? You don't even mind paying money to lose weight. If you want to lose weight real badly, all sorts of people are pe- paying, I suppose, billions of dollars all over the country year after year in order to lose weight because the, this is the goal. And here's somebody that can help them do what they've tried and tried and tried to do, and they've never succeeded. So they will surrender. And that means saying no to yourself. And nobody finds that easy. You remember that when Jesus talked about discipleship, he said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. That's the first condition. Or deny yourself. Or say no to yourself. Those are three different translations coming to the same thing. Weight Watchers is going to tell you to say no to yourself quite often, aren't they? And if you're going to learn to play tennis, then you can't be down at the bowling alley when it's time for the tennis lesson. You've got to say no to a whole bunch of things in order to fit in that one thing that you want to do beyond anything else. And the same thing is true of marriage. You don't see brides walking down the aisle sobbing their hearts out. Not very often. I don't think I've ever seen that. Everybody else may be sobbing with the glory and the beauty of the thing, and the mother of the bride is up there sobbing her heart out because she's losing a daughter. But why is that bride so filled with joy? Well, because there's a face down there at the front beaming back at her, a face that she loves, a man to whom she is just dying to surrender herself totally, And what she wants is the joy that marriage can bring. And so we surrender in all of these things. And yet when the world thinks of that word surrender, it is an odious word. And don't give me that stuff, we say. And the second thing, acceptance. Most of you, I suppose, know the Lord's Prayer. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And when I pray that prayer, which I do practically every day, very often more than once a day, I'm not thinking primarily of physical bread because the Lord has given me far more of that kind of food than I need. I'm thinking of whatever God knows that I need on that particular day. And there came a time when I had been married 27 months to the most wonderful man in the world, I thought, at that time. And I was a one-man woman. I could never imagine ever loving anybody else. But I was standing beside my shortwave radio in my jungle house one day in Ecuador when I got the word that my husband, Jim, was missing in savage territory. It took five days before we knew that he and his four companions were all dead. Now, all of you have experienced things in your lives that you don't like, you would never have chosen, you didn't want, and you cannot change. And certainly bereavement is one of the things we cannot change. And at that point, we have two choices. We either accept or we rebel. And when I think of the happiest people I know, they are without exception people who have suffered. Now, what is it? What is the difference between those bitter, angry, ungetalongwithable, unapproachable people And all of us probably know somebody like that. You just, they're like a tiger in a corner. And you approach them and they're going to lash out and you're going to get those claws. And you didn't do anything. We know that kind of person. And and we know the other kind that is refined gold. What made the difference? Well, of course, we could say it's the grace of God. But the grace of God goes to work on our nature. And God gives you and me a choice. We have a will. God has given us the power to choose to say yes to God or no. Now imagine Almighty God, who created the tides that obey him perfectly every day, the God of the winds, the God of the snow, the God of the atom, the God of the galaxies, All of these things obey him without fail. Every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every year, of all eternity. But he did create man and woman who have the power to defy him. Why did he do that? He didn't have to. And yet, to me, it's one of the most staggering facts about Almighty God that he should choose to give us a will whereby we may disobey him. And I think surely part of his reason must have been because he wanted us to love him freely. And so when that thing happens in your life that you cannot change, that alcoholic husband, perhaps that intractable teenager, that loss, that irretrievable loss, 
that awful thing that somebody did to you 15 years ago that you have never forgiven them for and you're never intending to, when that thing happens, will you say, Lord, I didn't choose it, I didn't foresee it, I don't like it, but I'll take it. And sometimes we have to be very honest with God and tell him that we really don't like it, but we still have the power to choose to say yes. We have the power to take what is given or not to. Now, if you refuse, if you rebel, that doesn't bring that person back, does it? It doesn't undo the loss. It's not going to change your husband or that child. You're just going to be more and more bitter and less and less get along withable and less and less godly like Jesus Christ. And so, as I would say to someone who would say to me, well, if that's what God does to you, I'm not going to follow a God like that. I would like to say to that person, but we've all got to walk through this world with all its dark valleys and its hot fires and its deep waters one way or another. Would you choose to walk through it alone? Or would you choose to go with him who said, Lo, I am with you all the days? Which would you choose? As I stood by that shortwave radio, God brought to my memory immediately the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord, thy God. Now, God was not telling me that I would not have to go through the deep waters. He does not exempt us. But he was saying, I will be with you. And he was. I'm here this afternoon, ladies, to tell you he was. And to be one of the millions, just one of the millions of witnesses that can tell you that God is faithful. He does not explain himself. He says, trust me. And all I can do to the person whose heart is breaking, who doesn't understand anything about the dealings of God with them or with the person that they love, all I can say to them is, Jesus died for you. That cross, towering o'er the wrecks of time, is the final irrefutable proof of the love of God. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so, five days after that radio message, I learned that I was a widow. I had been in love with this man, Jim Elliott, for five and a half years before we got married. We had fallen in love at Wheaton College. And Jim had told me then that he thought maybe God was asking him to remain single for the rest of his life. 
having just confessed his love for me, he said, but I think maybe God wants me to stay single for the rest of my life. I don't know, but I know that I must go to the mission field single and I must live in the jungle single. And if after having lived there and seen whether or not a wife would be a hindrance or a help, if God gives me the green light, you're the woman I want to marry. But he said, I'm not going to ask you to. I'm not going to ask you to wait for me. We had absolutely no commitment of any kind. He said, you go ahead and go to Africa. I'm going to go to South America, and if God wants to bring us together, he knows how to do that. Well, God did that, but it wasn't until five and a half years afterwards. And 27 months later, he's dead. What was I to do with those unchangeable facts? Well, back to that wonderful woman, Amy Carmichael. I had memorized some of her poems, and one of them has this refrain, in acceptance lieth peace. And I knew that I only had two choices, rebel or accept. And I said, Lord, when I was 12 years old, I asked that you would work out your whole will in my life at any cost. If widowhood is the place in which you want me to glorify you, I'll take it. Show me what to do. Show me how. Acceptance is the route to joy and the route to peace. And the last thing is obedience. Obedience. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. You must take up your cross That is acceptance. And you must follow me. And to follow somebody means to put one step in front of the other and go where they go. You don't know where Jesus is going to take you, do you? And there came a time when it looked to me as though God was going to tell me that I had to go back into the tribe that had killed my husband When I say back, I had never been there, of course. He was, he and the other five men had gone into this territory and I had not been there, but I said to the Lord, if you have anything you want me to do about the Aukas, why I'm available, thinking that there's no way that God would ever ask me to do something like that. And lo and behold, it looked as though he was going to ask me to do that. And he was simply saying, will you trust me? You promised to do my will. You asked me to work out my will in your life at any cost. So here it is, and it means obedience. And if there's one thing that we all need to remember, it's that obedience is our business. The results of the obedience are God's. When those five men went, five men went in there, they went in in obedience to God. They had no idea what the results would be, and of course they were killed. But the effects of the death of those men go on and on and on. Last night I met two young men in Wheaton who told me that their lives had been changed by that testimony. Now I want to get, I want to quit preaching and go to meddling <laughs> and talk about a very specific area of obedience which applies to us women. Paul is talking to a young preacher named Titus and telling Titus what 
he must preach in his church. And in the second chapter of the letter of Paul to Titus, he says, The older women should be reverent in their bearing, not scandalmongers or slaves to strong drink. They must set a high standard and school the younger women to be loving wives and mothers, temperate, that means self-controlled, chaste, that means pure, and kind. And what about this one? Busy at home, respecting the authority of their own husbands. Thus the gospel will not be brought into disrepute. And one of the things that I find very sad is that there are so few older women who are being obedient in this area. The world is telling us when you've raised your own children or when you've retired, then it's you owe it to yourself to do something for yourself. Go on a cruise, go back to school, get a new degree, learn under underwater macrame or some dumb thing. Uh, You owe it to yourself. Well, I don't find anything in my Bible that says I owe anything to myself except to lay down myself. Just give it up and lay it down and forget it. But here is a specific command to older women and who is obeying it. Well, thank God there are a few, and I'm sure there are some in this room. I just don't happen to know who you are. But I have had letters from younger women who say, I desperately need an older woman to teach me. I didn't have a Christian mother. I didn't come from a Christian home. I've gone to women in my church and said, would you help me learn to love my husband and love my children? And I've gotten no for an answer. I've had older women say to me, I wouldn't know how to do that. I don't have time. And my own life, personally, I have been blessed by at least five or six older women who have mothered me in ways that my own mother couldn't do because my own mother wasn't there. She was someplace else when I grew up. I want you to think about this. Do you hear of many divorces in Christian marriages? Lars and I hear about them every week. Why is this happening? I think one of the reasons is because older men are not teaching younger men to love their wives And older women are not teaching younger women to love their husbands. What does it mean to love your husband? Does it mean to feel good about him all the time? But that's an impossibility. He's a sinner. Did you ever stop to think about that? You married a sinner. There isn't anything else to marry. And that's one of the titles of the chapter of a chapter in my book, Let Me Be a Woman. But don't ever forget when you're thinking about that sinner, what's he stuck with? (laughs) He married a sinner, too. And if a sinful man and a sinful woman are going to live together 365 days a year, there are going to be a lot of times when one or both need to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Love is very patient very kind. Read 1 Corinthians 13 if you want to know what love is supposed to look like. And we could talk for a couple of hours about that, and Lars is giving me a time signal right now. Do you see children in the grocery store 
racing around, pulling stuff off the shelves. The poor, harried, worn-out mother with the baby in her arms and maybe another baby in the in the cart and two three-year-olds or four-year-olds racing around, yanking stuff off the shelves, taking the candy bars, taking a bite out of them before she's paid for them, <laughs> running to the gumball machine. Have you ever seen this? How many of you have never seen this? <laughs> the little girl over here put her hand up. She's never seen this. She's too small to see over the shelves the way the rest of us do. But in church, my husband and I go to a lot of churches and we see these kids racing around and scribbling on the blackboards and yelling, you know, if there's a church supper or something where they don't have to be absolutely silent. But in the church meeting, climbing over the bench, playing on the floor, playing with the hymn books, going out three or four times to the bathroom and all this kind of thing. Why is there no discipline in Christian homes and Christian churches? I think the answer is right here in this passage. Older women have not been teaching the younger women to love their children. And to love your child means to spank him. And I'm going to say that in spite of all the fears about child abuse. Child abuse is a very different thing from a calm, measured, appropriate measure of pain given to a little child in order to teach him a lesson and given, administered in love by a mother who is in control. First of herself, calm, quiet, loving. It is possible to teach your eight-month-old who is learning to crawl not to touch things. And if you child-proof your home and you don't teach them that, what are you going to do when they go to Aunt Susie's and Grandma's and to the grocery store? Well, I haven't got time to go through all of those things, but this is one area of obedience that I would strongly urge upon you. Younger women, be willing to listen. If there's an older woman that will help you, I would strongly urge you younger women to ask for help. It's not very many young people that want advice and will listen to it. And it's hard to give it out if they don't want it. Older women, I would strongly urge you to pray, first of all, that God will show you the woman who needs your help with her baby or her husband. And let me say, every woman in this room is an older woman. If you're 20, the 15-year-old is looking to you for a model of godly womanliness. <coughs> Don't be primarily concerned with, where can I find a spiritual mother? Be primarily concerned with, Lord, qualify me to be a spiritual mother. And don't make excuses for yourself and say, well, I wouldn't know how to do that. God will give you the grace. He will give you the wisdom. He will show you. A godly woman is a happy woman. She has surrendered everything to Jesus Christ. She is available. A godly woman has accepted whatever God gives to her as her daily bread, her marriage, her home, her work, acceptance. A godly woman is an obedient woman, and I have found more joy along the path of thy instructions than in any kind of wealth. If we hear these words today, 
It's going to make a big difference in your church, in your community, in your home. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.